break. I think we think we're going to get started here on the next panel. Um, strategies for building a commercial real estate portfolio. Um, I think we've got a, an interesting uh, mix of panelists here. We have uh, family offices, we have developers, we have an uh, interesting uh, co-investment platform. Uh, so I hope, uh, I hope we can give you some knowledge about uh, building a commercial uh, real estate portfolio. Um, I think I'd like you know start off, let the uh, panelists introduce themselves and you know just give a short uh, intro about you know what their strategy and, and what they do. I think we'll start off with uh, Fetty and go down the line. Hi, is this on? It's on. Uh, I'm Fadi Eftimios with Group RMC. We're, uh, we're the interesting structure co-investment group. So we do uh, office in uh, typically in secondary markets across the Midwest and the Southeast. And our, uh, our group, we, we're amongst the biggest investors in every deal that we do. And we're typically looking for high cap rates, um, eight plus, and we wanna buy in at a price that's significantly below replacement value. So we, we know we have an upside on our deals. Okay, next. Hi, Josh Coulter um, with the Robbins family. It's a second generation family office. Um, made their money in real estate and we are still concentrating on um, a bit of hospitality but mostly uh, multifamily in the Southeast. Hi, my name is Marco Soriano, good afternoon. Um, the fourth generation of a family office were known as Anscore, the Soriano Group globally, San Miguel Beer, Dutch Phillips, the Philippines Airlines, and in the hotel business, which is our bread and butter, uh, the Milia Hotels, based in Spain. Today we're looking at the U.S. market in New York, Florida, and California. Hello, uh, my name is Mathias Voisant. I'm with Fiduciary. We're a holding company, single family office. We do uh, roll up in the business services sector and on the uh, real estate side, we uh, acquire assets uh, in Europe, in the US uh, for ourselves. Uh, we own a REIT manager uh, in Europe and we also do uh, uh, opportunistic uh, development transaction uh, in the US, um, like in the uh, residential sector. Good afternoon, my name is uh, David Fong. Uh, I actually wear two hats. I'm the uh, senior vice president and uh, general counsel for the Gupta family office. The uh, Gupta family office is a 40-year single-family office that has about 400 million in assets. Um, I'm also a, the founder of Redbridge Capital. Redbridge Capital is an operator and investor of uh, student housing and market rate uh, apartments, uh, which the Gupta family office is the anchor investor in. Uh, yes, hello, my name is Russ Kriver. I have been in the multifamily development space for 15 years. I have, uh, my firm develops rental apartments across the American South uh, in the high growth markets. And uh, my name is uh, Michael Fellman, and like uh, um, David, I wear a couple of hats. I'm the CEO of my own uh, single family office called FLLC, and then I have a, um, Family Office Advisory, MFO, called MSF Capital Advisors with two other family offices. Um, real estate is a, a pretty big sector uh, in our, in our uh, multifamily group, um, primarily uh, multifamily apartments. Many of them are garden style, 
in the East Coast, and then we also own pretty substantial real estate around the globe. Um, my first question is for the family offices. Um, where do family offices mostly source their deal flow? And uh, I guess we'll start with David. Okay. Uh, it's going to be kind of cliche, but it's really through relationships. Um, the family office has been around, I said, for 40 years, and so it's mainly through relationships with property owners, brokers, attorneys. I mean, it, it's pretty much all, all the typical sources. And Matthias? Well, yeah, same in, in the way that uh, relationships obviously very important on the ground. Uh, we tend to focus on, on the same areas, so people uh, tend to know us locally. And also we, we tend to do uh, quite a lot of data mining uh, nowadays as well. Try to uh, uh, involve a larger degree of technology as well in, in the way we uh, to get to get more granular uh, in terms of the information we're getting. And Marco, um, I would say that I would I wouldn't do a deal if I have if I don't have a clue who you are and I haven't met you face to face or anybody in my family. <coughs> Typically, the people that come to us are through my grandfather and my dad, which is those generations that had already done business with them. My original sources come from the new networks that I do uh, conferences like so or um, having fun sometimes. Okay, la last but not least, Josh. <laughs> I would probably mirror um, David and Marco, um, definitely on the relationship side. Um, and having worked in Europe for six years as well as throughout the U.S., I have a pretty vast network that I think you're at a stage where we get we like to work with people that we know and we like and um, that's where it comes down to uh, keeping those relationships up I think yeah I mean similar in, in our circumstance um, I was a, a my background uh, quickly was I was a, a lawyer uh, did a lot of real estate here in New York City uh, my partner in MSF was also a tax lawyer real estate developer um, on the family side, on the multifamily side, uh, we have families that are third, fourth generation uh, real estate owners and developers, and so they tend to know everybody in the industry. Um, and we do look, we do look at some deal flow from from brokers, but really tend to be relationships that we've had for a long time. And so that's that's a trust our trusted advisor, like a, a lawyer or an accountant or somebody that uh, you know, we use as a, as a law firm or an accounting firm. And so you know, a referral from them tends to get to the top of the pile. And, um, you know, and then we'll, we'll see where it, where it goes. Um, what type of deals and investment opportunities are you currently seeking now? And uh, I guess we'll start with uh, Russ. So we're looking for uh, w w what we've always done, which is suburban apartment sites um, in high-end markets with great schools and uh, some barriers to entry, whether it be zoning or just availability of land, um, and where we can keep the rents affordable if we can put some kind of an additional income uh, stream in the project. So for example, one of our deals right now, we have a 15,000 square foot medical office building that's being constructed next to the apartment community. Um, on the other on the other end of the spectrum, we're looking for triple net si uh, triple net uh, lease sites that are towards the end of their 
um, lease periods and that we can redevelop or, uh, or out parcels uh, that, have, uh, that have closed. For example, bank branches right now are, um, you know, are, are, uh, a lot of banks are reducing their footprint due to digital banking. And so we're looking for opportunities where we can rezone those out parcels for a some kind of a combination of uh, retail entertainment and, uh, and housing on top. Yeah, why don't we just go down the line, David? Sure. Um, we focus, again, mainly on student housing and apartments. Uh, on the student housing side, uh, all our assets are primarily in the western U.S., so we're in California, Arizona, Nevada, and Texas. Uh, we basically look for universities um, with a story and an opportunity. Um, obviously, growing enrollment, uh, we like schools. We also have growing international student populations because uh, a lot of those students tend to pay a lot more in rent. Um, we also look for opportunities basically in all the assets where we can grow revenue. And I know that sounds a little bit cliche, but we, we look specifically for things like, for example, uh, we rezone properties where maybe there was retail that was in the project 10 years ago that the, the land use and city officials required them to put in, but it was never rented. And so we'll rezone it and add residential units. We'll uh, convert uh, unused dens and living rooms into extra bedrooms to add more students. Um, on the apartment side, we focus mainly on non-Class A assets. We like the B assets and kind of turn them into B-plus assets, again, through adding rooms, um, increasing amenities, uh, things of that nature. So in terms of uh, new deal flow, we uh, want to generate, you see, uh, on the uh, single-family uh, rental side. Um, so looking to uh, work with a, uh, with a sponsor in that space. Um, quite conscious, uh, we, we're coming in uh, likely a bit late in the cycle, but uh, we, we think it's a very promising uh, area. We, we got the experience in, uh, in Europe uh, on the residential side, and uh, we have the operating experience because we own uh, um, facility management um, uh, companies as well, so we're not too afraid uh, by the uh, uh, intensity of the management required uh, by single-family homes. And I just mentioned as well uh, um, uh, the deal flow uh, we need on the corporate side. So we're looking to acquire um, payroll uh, companies, CPA firms, and uh, uh, wealth management uh, companies. In, in the U.S., our, the current concept that seems to be working for us is the mixed use of hotels and residential. So, for example, in Ball Harbor, for those familiar with, we were the developers in, of the St. Regis Hotel. A couple streets down, we just finalized the Four Seasons Surfside, and we're looking to do a third one, similar concept in Fort Lauderdale, another Four Seasons, which would be right next to the W Hotel. Since we have been in the hospitality business since the 50s, it's kind of our DNA and specific deals that we look to do on that. In Europe, in London, and, and in countries like the Mediterranean countries, Portugal, Spain, and, and Italy, we're looking at infrastructural real estate. We're, we're looking to buy into the capital structures of airports, commercial airports, small ones, and as well as uh, cargo, which is our main thing. So we're Mostly focused on going into existing multifamily throughout the Southeast, uh, Class B, Class C, where we can bring it up a level, but typically MSAs that are gonna have inelastic demand qualities, drivers with good schools, population growth, rent growth, there needs to be drivers that are going to be um, really uh, some expansion plays and 
we see some tailwinds for the for the long term because we're typically going into it looking seven to ten year hold minimum. So we need the overall thesis to, to have some longevity. Um, so we were, I guess, a little bit more boring. We really want to focus on office space, typically in secondary markets. That's our niche. We don't really move away from that because we're very, very good in that space. And we've been told for about 20 years now it's not a good space. And it, it is a good space. Uh, we're happy that there's not that many, there's not a lot of crowds there. We like to you know, sidestep the traffic if possible. There's a lot of really good players in multifamily and other areas. And we don't understand why we'd want to compete with them when we're doing our own thing and doing well. So we, we really want that office space, the niche markets. Uh, we, as I said, we're looking for really, really high cap rates, and they do exist. They're harder to find right now, but we are finding them. We have a very good reputation with the sellers. A lot of our deals are private deals. Um, you know, the question comes up, well, real estate is expensive everywhere. We're buying stuff $80 a square foot, you know, with good occupancy and good upside, $90. You know, there's more upside potential than downside potential in, in the deals we're trying to do. Can I ask Fadi a quick question? Go ahead. How how are you guys how are you guys looking at the WeWorks effect and and how there's less space per employee? Do you think that do you think that's run its course and do you think that that we've already seen the effects of that in the office market? I'm just curious. Uh, good question. We're we're still looking at it. I mean, we were talking about it earlier with the millennials and all that, and we're seeing, you know, there's different there's different opinions on what's going on in the suburban markets, and we're seeing a lot of our I mean, typically a third to forty percent of our tenants are credit tenants. And a lot of them are ta have been asking for more space. Our challenge is really getting them into more space in the current portfolios we're in than, than downsizing them. So we're not really seeing that. You know, and, and, and I should mention, what one of our strategies is really when we're taking over a portfolio, we want to, you know, uh, we do really conservative underwriting. So we want to protect ourselves. We'd rather go into, it sounds odd, but we'd rather go into something where, you know, the, the current leasing team did not do a great job and rents are below market and uh, it's not fully occupied because we want that upside either on bumping up the rents or filling up the space. And we want to capitalize on others, maybe mediocrity. So we're not really seeing the issues right now. Yeah, so for us, um, we've been traditional multifamily uh, apartment owners, um, particularly garden style. Uh, up and down the East Coast, uh, I like to say one of my clients says, we like garden style because I don't have to pay for an elevator. Um, we haven't seen too many good deals in, in that space recently. Uh, an area that we, we're, we're heavily focused on right now, I've got two deals on my plate, is in the data center space. Uh, we are in data centers. We own, I think, roughly around 12 right now. But we think that's a good space to go in as you know, we're now going to 5G, uh, you know, cloud, everybody's migrating to the cloud. Uh, we think that's a great space to be in in this, in this cycle. The other area that we've been looking in and we have no experience in this space is industrial, like warehouses and so forth. Um, you know, the whole e-commerce platform. So uh, that's something we would probably partner up with either a developer or a fund, or we're looking at a fund in St. Louis right now on that. Um, but those are the two big areas for us on the real estate. We have some legacy uh, uh, development project. Um, if anyone here is from Miami, uh, we, we are the owners of Miami World, which is a massive uh, you know, real estate mixed-use project. 
um, but really data centers, industrial, uh, we've never really done anything in the hospitality space, but um, those are the two big, big areas for us. Um, kind of as, a, as an ancillary question, you know, we talked about how deal flow, you typically see deal flow, but has, in your experience, has there been any, you know, surprising ways that you've seen deal flow that maybe nobody else has seen? You know, we all t love to talk about off-market stuff, but where, you know, do you sometimes have a kind of a secret sauce that you've used to kind of find these gems that nobody else is looking at? And I'm opening that up to, to anybody who wants to kind of take the lead on that. Sure. You'd be surprised um, how much access to deal flow your architects and engineers may have because they know who just entitled a site and can't close. Um, and, uh, and, and they know which sites are, are best for what you're trying to do. So I, I think that's, that's, that's one of the sources that has surprised us recently. We, I mean, again, because we're not where all the traffic is, I mean, we sort of get, we're preferred buyer in many cases with some of the biggest institutional sellers. So we, we you know, for bidding on a $100 million portfolio, there's not a lot of groups at the table that can close it with, you know, with a really good reputation and close it quickly. So we will often bid on those deals and come in second or third in the bidding and still get the deal because the seller knows us, they know we'll close, we, they know our due diligence process will be seamless. And uh, so we don't have to, we don't, we don't want to overpay for anything. So we'll just, there's not a lot of groups in our space. Okay. The, the opportunity that we found in, in developing in this small town in Italy, I don't know, I'm sure you have all traveled there to the most known cities, but when you look at the Adriatic Sea side, which faces Croatia, and, and those countries, the Balkans, there's a great potential for real estate. So we started out in this small town called Reconati, where there was, it was one of the small towns on the Nap Hill that was dying out due to the economic crisis. And we saw about, out of 260 commercial spaces, 120 of them were completely out of business. So we negotiated with the municipality at the time to be able to buy those, buy those owners out and rebuild that infrastructure. So we recreated in that small town an open mall in, 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 the, in, the, in the town. So to make demand for that, because I, I can bring Cipriani, I can bring Armani, I can bring all the big brands from Milan to this small town, but to make the demand and make it happen, I sort of opportunistic to study the infrastructure of the region itself. So we looked at the, we look at the airport because the airport is what's gonna bring you those passengers from no matter where you're looking to get them. And we became part, partners of the capital structure. Mm -hmm. We had some experience with airports from having our Philippines Airlines, as I had mentioned to you guys, so the government was very easy to negotiate with in terms of any process of privatization with the airport and allowing us to manage the cargo. At that time, talking about three years ago, having UPS, FedEx present and then bringing other airlines to the region so that this development, this real estate development would actually have clients or consumers. Most Mediterranean countries are very touristy 
but when it comes down to understanding the numbers, I think is a strategic positioning of your investment, the timing, and the negotiations with those municipalities. And they are open to negotiate and bring, bring you on board if you are a strategic value to them. I can't say that for the U.S. because we haven't seen that. Openness to be part of uh, the La Guardia Air Force or JFK. I don't even know who runs that. But if, if you're looking to make an investment of the sort, I, I would say study the economic parameters around that to what's really going to make that demand possible so that your numbers, your projections do make sense. Otherwise, it won't. Anyone else? Sorry. One, one other good source other than uh, architects and engineers, I agree with you, is uh, property managers. Oftentimes, we, we hire third-party property managers on our apartment portfolios, and they often have either the current property they're managing, they know inside sort of a seller wants to sell, or it's property that they used to manage, and they've kind of kept their nose to the ground pretty well. And so oftentimes, we find opportunities in the multifamily space that way. Um, one of the interesting uh, areas where we came across the deal, as mentioning earlier to the panel, was when we had a failed deal. And so uh, we, we were approached, we're pretty known in the student housing space, and so we were approached on a uh, project at UNLV in Las Vegas. And UNLV is a very interesting uh, statistics school. It's 28,000 student enrollment, but the university only has about uh, less than 2,000 dormitory beds. And so and the main reason was the university has always been focused on being a commuter school. Uh, but in terms of purpose-built student housing, it's pretty non-existent there. And so what had happened was uh, someone who was on the board of trustees of the university, uh, who was a developer, of course, uh, knew that the university finally made a commitment that they wanted to move up in the college ranks. And to move up in college ranks, you, you look at the top schools, you have to have a good, strong residential community on campus or close to campus. And so the university partnered with the developer, and, and they, the university bought the land, ground leased it back to the developer for him to build this 2,000 beds of student housing. The developer, unfortunately, passed away, and his son took over the project, and he was looking for partners, and that's how he found us. And we looked at it, and we didn't know what was happening at UNLV, like a lot of uh, other student investors, student housing investors. And we didn't ultimately do a deal with him, but when we got interested in the market, we saw this opportunity. We subsequently, just through interacting with brokers and other uh, business people, we were telling them, what are you looking at? And we told them how, how we looked at this deal in Vegas, and then we found another site. And then, and that site is the site where right now I'm building, you know, I'm 70% built. Uh, we're building a 600-bed facility right across the street from the existing dormitories. And so it was funny because, you know, we never planned to be a full-time developer to build such a big project, but we just kind of lucked into it. And then we think after we build it, there'll be a lot of other developers coming into that market too. So sometimes you just don't know. That's the, so one thing I learned leaving law, you know, on the business side, you don't know where sometimes the deals come from. And that's why it's important to cultivate relationships and be known out there in the market. Yeah, I was going to say to Marco, and so you're trying to partner with LaGuardia Airport. We can't even get Queens to partner with Amazon. <laughs> find, <laughs> find an easier city to deal with. No, no, I haven't tried. I haven't. I just said if that was an opportunity, I'm sure many of you would look at it. We haven't. Anyone, anyone else? Um, well, for us, um, it kind of goes back. Uh, after the law, I, I did some nonprofit work uh, before I got into investments with local community development organizations who usually have a lot of connections into the local government, local planning board. And because, look, real estate, a lot of it's about density, zoning, variance, 
finding the residential and getting there first, right? Um, you know, we even have a, I have a similar story to Marco in Brazil. Uh, one of our clients in Brazil is able to, has been able to find out where they were going to build a new uh, airport outside of um, Sao Paulo, and they basically went and bought up all the land around it. Um, and then eventually that airport got built, and eventually they, you know, storage got built, and, you know, so forth. And so it's really, I think, being very proactive as opposed to reactive, and really, you know, doing the, the footwork and, and, and cultivating relationships with government officials that you could really find out, you know, where, where's the next hotspot. I mean, I, the, the, I live in Brooklyn, and, and um, this development co-op was in Gowanus. I don't know if anybody knows Brooklyn, but uh, that was actually a super fun site. It's actually now one of the hottest pieces of real estate after uh, Williamsburg. Uh, Whole Foods moved in there. Toll Brothers has a big project there. Uh, but at one time, that was actually a super fun site. And so you've got you've to gotta do some homework and legwork and kind of find out where, you know, where development is going or where, where people are moving to or, or for jobs and trying to take advantage of that uh, information. Um, the next question I have, and this is really to the, to the family offices on the panel, is uh, in deciding what deals to pursue, what are you initially looking for in pitch decks? And uh, we'll start off with uh, Josh. I think uh, what's paramount to us is probably the, the team's uh, localized uh, experience and track record for sure. Um, and kind of what we spoke about earlier, I think the marketing materials would be secondary, but all else equal, you know, we, you do need to see a good presentation if there's a lot of mistakes and um, or the underwriting um, is, is way too aggressive. I think we do look for uh, conservative underwriting, thoughtful underwriting, um, and a well-executed presentation to really express the ideas of, of their background and expertise in that local sub-market. How about you, Matthias? So, uh, well, we, we come from the analytics side, so I guess, uh, yeah, the nature of the underwriting, whether it's, it's aggressive or, or conservative, is, is important to us. We, we, want, we want to see uh, reasonable assumptions, and, and, uh, and then it's obviously around the, uh, the team and the relevant experience. Yeah. And David? Uh, same as Joshua. Um, we look first at the team and the track record and the experience, and then we, we do the underwriting also. We underwrite you know, pretty heavily on our side, and you know, see we, they, ne they need to have an investment story in the thesis, and it has to make sense. And so, but the first threshold question is, are they capable, are they experienced, how long have they been together, how long have they been investing? So I have, I know it's kind of, if that clock is right, we're kind of, I want to save some time for questions. So I'm going to, I guess this is going to be the last one. And this is really for the family offices again. Family offices have to compete against private equity firms for deals. Is there anything about your deal structure that would be beneficial to sponsors and therefore give you an advantage over private equity firms? We'll start off with Marco. With me? Yeah. <coughs> Why could you to be over a private equity firm? You know what? I, I don't see myself competing with private equity funds because everything that we do, it's, it's under our times. And then when I work with co-investors or other family offices, I give them the times. And if those times meet yours, then it's a deal you should be involved with us in doing. Private equity have the money too, so they don't have to really do much. And going back to you know understanding what representation material they have, I don't, 
I don't always believe any of that information until I meet the person and I see who they really are and if they can execute. That's really a risk mitigation process. So I think we have time for a couple questions, right? Okay, so does anybody have any questions in the audience? Please don't talk about your specific deal or political stuff and uh, please keep it, you know, keep it to the point. Sure, go ahead. So in, you're referring to the case in Europe. You travel, I suppose, right? So when you're traveling in, in Mediterranean countries, which is probably where most people like to go in Europe, you see these empty towns, these empty businesses, or businesses that are closed at certain hours, apart from the cultural uh, times that they have. We walked through it, and we understood that there was a chance, and we seeked out to have a meeting with the municipality. So we met with the mayor, we met with the governor, before we met with the business owners that are out of business. So we started structuring our deal with the government to make sure that we had all the leeway. Now why the government? Because the government officials already know who those owners are better than we do. So they're gonna back us up. And in that process, is when I came on board to try and study the whole region, the infrastructure and the importance of that. So in an example in Florida, for those of you from Florida, the three counties at the bottom, Miami-Dade, Monroe, and Broward County. Broward County is having tremendous issues with potable water. So it doesn't matter what you're building there, all of those tenants, all of those people living or doing business there are having issues with potable water. So perhaps you should be looking into the infrastructural real estate opportunities for that before you invest in the other, just to mitigate your risk. So this is my approach, and typically it works. Oh, so we're GPs, so we take 50 to 80% of our money into these deals, and we allocate a block of 20 to 30%, if you will, to American investors or other Europeans. I think we got time for maybe one more, if I'm that clock is. I think we answered that question, but uh, if anybody wants to re repeat it. Single family rentals. Hospitality. Southeast multifamily. Go ahead. Western U.S. Uh, student office. housing and apartments, B-class. And I said, I think as I mentioned before, data centers, I've got two data center projects sitting on my desk that I probably have to go back and look at right now. But uh, yeah, data centers for us is a big one. And I think we're out of time, right? Yeah, thank you very much.